This is episode 29 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Canadian men's national basketball team's physical performance coaches, Charlie Weingroff and Karen Gill. So can we start by having you both introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Charlie Weingroff. I guess today I'm in my Canada basketball gear. So that's uh, I'm the director of physical development for men's Canada basketball. And uh, obviously I do a lot of other things if people follow my public profile. But uh, I'm a physical therapist on some days. I'm a strength and conditioning coach on other days. And I'd like to think I'm mainly a deal maker. I, I bring, try to bring things together. My name is Karen Vera Gill. I'm a strength and conditioning coach, uh, athletic performance coach with Canada Basketball here. And can you guys talk about your experience working for Team Canada Basketball and how you approach working together? So I think in 2011, uh, Canada Basketball had a uh, a very significant uh, reboot, if you will, with a lot of uh, uh, leadership being uh, shifted around. And uh, uh, our director, Sam Gibbs, of, uh, I guess the name of our high-performance program is uh, IST, Integrated Support Team, where at that point is when I when I came in. And uh, I don't remember if quite then Karen Veer was with us, but uh, as our program grew, uh, people that had uh, very significant contributions, uh, as we grew both in resources and in need, uh, we were able to bring uh, other people on in a more formal role. And it was interesting, you know, even though Canvier was not technically an intern, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm the only non-intern in Canada basketball. So the, the vision that Sam had and, 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 and that we executed for the better part of this decade Working together isn't really an issue because no one really knows any other way. We have not uh, really had any need to look outside of our own program for filling spaces. You know, I just like to say we have when you have good people and you have a system, working together isn't isn't a problem. So we have job titles that that fill our contracts so we can get paid, but there really is no job title for anybody. We just have a bunch of people that uh that that have skills and our system decides who has the best skills. They're the ones that 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 handles uh the particular situation. Uh we do have a lot of multidisciplinary uh, individuals that are healthcare trained and, uh, and, and, uh, fitness trained. Uh, and even those that are not, Caravir went to chiropractic school and decided that wasn't the right thing for him. But even, you know, it's in our DNA where we have a lot of people that are dual trained, but we have a lot of people that aren't as well. When did you start? Like five years ago. So 2013. Yeah. yeah Caravir is a very critical role because, uh, as our program grew, uh, Actually, we're here at Humber College, which is our national training center. But before our relationship with them, uh, Karen Veer's relationship with the, t- with the, the organization was to use his gym. Uh, so a place that we could continually have good control over development of our players. Uh, when that opportunity came, he was, he was there where, you know, a lot of people try to get involved with what we're doing and, uh, but uh, we were very, very selective and, and happy with the people that we have. What's your framework for developing a well-rounded strength and conditioning program? 
we don't have a strength conditioning program. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, it, it's it's the it's not the answer you're looking for, but and it's a little bit sensational. But we 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 don't have a strength and conditioning program. We have we have a performance program, so that's just semantics. But we we believe that there's at least six, if not seven, uh, different interventions that can improve basketball. So if if traditional strength and conditioning uh, values are revealed then we apply those methods. But it's not a strength and conditioning program. It's because the athlete and the, the program, the team, the system called upon that. Um, but that's just one of six or seven different large groups of interventions. So if Caranvier does manual therapy on someone, is that that's every bit of strength and conditioning as him managing uh, uh, something that is very fatiguing you know, to the cardiovascular system, which is the same as uh, doing blood work to determine um, what what are the best foods for an athlete to eat, which is the same as blah blah blah. So I don't know that. I, would you agree? Like I don't think I don't think we have a strength and conditioning program. Um, we have people that are very very expert at at uh, executing specific adaptations to impose demands in regards to fitness, but only when they're called upon. And when you have elite basketball players, getting them sh- more strong or more conditioned is really not even part of uh, their needs. They they just need to be who they are as often as possible. So, but uh, but as far as the younger kids, where the need is higher, that's where Caranvier would be able to answer better. Yeah, I think with our with our younger kids, uh, our our approach has been very uh, to expose them to as many different movement skills as possible. Um, to make sure that they they have a, a diverse background in in, in uh, all of those abilities before we start to get into more specific um, training interventions as they progress towards uh, their professional careers. For sports in general, at what level of sport or what age do you think it's important for kids to start learning this type of thing? I mean, I think uh, while well, our junior academy program, uh, which is we start with uh, 12 and 13 year olds, uh, grade seven and eight up here in Canada, uh, and that's where we, they begin to be exposed to you know uh, different movement skills, locomotion, uh, strength, endurance, and some of these uh, things that we value. But I think I think we have kids. So our formal program is that, but we have kids that are even younger that we that we intervene upon. Yeah, I, I mean, if there's a if there's a, a kid that's identified by the program that could be outside of that formal junior academy program, um, we'll we'll start to bring them in at, at even younger ages. Yeah, one of the, one of the core values in determining age, if you ask an athlete to or a child to to participate in an activity where it can only be done in a specific way, then this is when the program starts. So so yeah, even if it's like a bunch of little kids playing football and all 11 kids chase the ball every time, they're being asked to kick the ball in the other goal. At some point, that's, that's constrained and that's where the, uh, the, the more formal development process would, would start. If they're just going to the park and they are allowed to pick whatever piece of equipment they want to use and they can stop and start whenever they want, then there's probably no need for a formal development. But as soon as they're asked to perform in one way, which can mean a lot of different things, but not others. 
So uh, that's when we feel that that's our, our program, which is very consistent with uh, Canada is very progressive. My country is not uh, in terms of, of uh, long-term athletic development, even well below our formal uh, age groups of, of grade seven and eight. So, I mean, in this industry, working with athletes, there's a lot of overlap between rehab programs and strength and conditioning programs. So do you look at those separately? Does everyone do a little bit of everything? How do you approach that? So in our system, and, and, and uh, we don't have core values that just have a few words. It's more of a core thought, and they, they're not different. And, and it's not even a conversation that we have. It's, uh, I don't know what, what a rehab program is or a strength and conditioning program is. We have, we have uh, tests that we value, and if we can, regardless of what the techniques are that we have access to, we think that if these four things are maximized, it, it's it's uh, um, every, everything of value, injury prevention, performance, durability, all these different key words, we feel very strongly that it's just one thing. So everything is fitness. Like there's no such thing as rehab. Like there's, there's different entry points because fitness is how you adapt. So if you need rehab, if you have pain or if you have something that is below industry standard, that means you are not fit by definition for whatever was in front of you. So any notion that rehab is equal, like it's not. Like rehab is, is like when things go wrong. Um, the, so if you are engaging in, in stress manage, load management in an accurate way, you, you really shouldn't need to do rehab a lot. Uh, what we'll do is recover when those techniques look like uh, rehab, but um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, you answered that yeah, well. Yeah. I just wanted to know how you integrated that. Yeah. Like, what if a player had an injury or recovering from an injury? Because that would kind of involve some of that lower level stuff to start. So, the first thing would be we would find ways for them continue to deliver as high level of stress as possible. I would much rather. Uh, someone have a lower leg injury and do absolutely nothing with their lower leg, zero, and, and do the, uh, uh, as much aggressive training as they possibly could with their other leg and their arms and, and, and trunk. Uh, uh, that is 100% the, the priority every single time. Uh, luckily, that never really has to be one or the other. But every, everything that we value in terms of a training program there's something else that they can do that's on the way. So we're just finding different entry points. So again, we don't look at injuries. We look at it, can, can joints get into the right positions to train? Yes, train. No, why? And now if we have a ligamentous injury, if we have a soft tissue injury, then we apply the technique. Then the only reason we apply the technique is so they can do the other exercises. This is why it's not rehab and training because people that focus on rehab, they don't even know what what training looks like they don't know they, it's not it's not what they're good at so now that's like the answer to the other question like how people work together because there might the, the the rehab person doesn't necessarily have to have high level understanding but they're not allowed to say it's not important and and then these programs look like like uh, poop soup because the rehab person is like the gatekeeper and they think it's cool or they want to be more involved or they want to grow themselves and they're putting out, you know, nonsense. So it's, uh, um, you know, where, like, one of the things you try to think of, um, who would you want to, to, to treat your grandmother? You know, somebody that dabbles in, in what she needs or 
somebody that you know takes a two-day course and all of a sudden you know uh, uh, they they learn to be a strength coach in two days or or the opposite a, a fitness person learns to do some rehab things uh, or different entry points uh, below the fitness level so we never really have to deal with that because we have got a very very insulated uh, service model for physios or clinicians who aren't closely working with a team but maybe treating athletes how would you suggest that they communicate with the coaches of the team like strength coaches the team coaches everything I mean I think in, in our situation it's a little bit unique in that we're not external we're very much a part of um, the the coaching staff there's there's really no difference between any of us and any of the other coaches so we don't really face that problem say there's a physio at a clinic who's treating an athlete who's going back to any sport how do they then take that athlete and integrate them back into their normal program like would you want them to communicate with you about you know adding in some of their exercises from physio or something like that like where does that how do you bridge that gap I don't necessarily think you have to worry about integrating them if you never like siphoned them off to to the clinic per se um, I think they should always remain integrated uh, and then you don't have these these issues Okay, so now it's like one layer less, I think. So, so there's a piece of paper that has a strength and conditioning program on it. And so now we can talk to that. Like, I don't know that we need to, like, that's, that's, that answers the question, like, where are we going? Like, what do you want? So now you look at that whole strength and conditioning program. And again, I would suggest that the therapist not choose to pass judgment because the kid is going to have to do what's on there. Um, but, Again, the model would be very, very clear. Train the holy hell out of them as aggressively as possible to develop as much general macro adaptations so that if even if the program is foolish and the therapist is actually competent to judge that, which I am highly skeptical of, uh, they would uh, be resilient. So you can, do, you can make a lot of mistakes if you just show up to the dance more fit. But it, let's say um, the, there's a squat in the program but their left knee hurts. I say, okay, so instead of squat, you're going to do a single leg squat because the one knee is not involved anymore or whatever you think is very close to building the same kind of goals. So you should be able to look at a strength and conditioning program and be like, okay, why are they doing the squat? Lower body strength. Okay, well, the squat is not the only lower body strength exercise on earth. So I don't have the warranty to have efficient adaptations because my left knee hurts. So how do I build lower body strength on my right leg? That's the primary thought. Now, the therapist may not be the best one to execute that, but that's the that's where we start to uh, have these internal discussions. And then the therapist has to identify why the right, why the left knee hurts and, and find the proper interventions. Because sometimes it's not even a rehab thing. Sometimes people's knee hurt only after a certain period of time. It's not a primary, uh, recovery thing. It's a chronic recovery thing. They're just not fit. If your knee doesn't hurt one time when you do it, then it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an endurance issue. It's not a joint issue. It can't, it's not a trigger point issue. It will hurt every single time if it was something like that. And then, but because the therapist doesn't know what to do anymore, they don't, they don't have a, an environment or even a skill set on how do I even learn 
you know, you would tell somebody go run five miles and now your knee hurts. Like that doesn't, that, that's, that's really somewhat masochistic. <laughs> it's, uh, so, um, it, it, again, the, 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 the blue sky solution is like what Karenvir said. It's like the, the, you don't even think this way. Like it can never, and it can't be one person. So if, if, uh, it's about people working together because no one has the ability to, we can think all similarly, but nobody can, can find the proper uh, intervention from one person. That's not a, I'm not sure that's possible. How do you transition people back to playing? Like, how do you determine when someone is ready to start playing again? Uh, if it's in a very, very controlled setting, like where, where our top level players, or even, you know, as we get more resourced or lower level, we look for, number one, what the literature would say in terms of percentages of those particular measures, uh, or we just pick, you know, some in terms of common sense. Um, unfortunately, um, the biggest issue in return to play measures is we don't know what they were beforehand. So if we don't have, and especially in a commercial setting, you get a kid like what you're describing from somewhere else. Um, you could probably talk about some of the things that we look at here because we have data on when kids are good. So we then put percentages of that, of when they're good, from all different, you know, not just how long they're training, but how strong they are or what their range of motion, well, all these very, very traditional things. But if you don't know any of that, you can just go by guessing, and that's why return to play measures is such a, a hotly discussed topic, because it's like uh, what's it called? The uh, Occam's razor is like the, the 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 simplest solution is usually the correct one. The simplest solution is just to have measures beforehand, <laughs> so that you can match things up, and 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 now we can run literature instead of trying to find out what's the the package of five or six things that the uh, return to play for an ACL, you, you'll all, instead of the, you will already know the five or six things, and now we'll know the percentages of what you should be doing uh, before you go back. But we can talk about some of those measures for us. I mean, I think, uh, like Charlie alluded to, um, our, a big part of our return to play is knowing what they were before uh, the injury. So whether that's uh, our use of uh, a mega wave or first beat um, or their movement screens um, and, and these strength or endurance measures, those, those are what we always go back to. And then, uh, and then it's coming up with percentages um, that we feel comfortable with, um, that they should be able to, to hit those percentages before we make a decision on that. Yeah, that, and that's how it goes back to one of the other questions. Like there's no... There's no rehab or training. It's all we, like our tests are the same for everyone because we've chosen tests that can span individuals that are below industry standard in different qualities or above industry standards. So now that's our intake of movement, output, readiness, and sensory systems. And now if it's a return to play issue, we are going to use the same movement, output, readiness, and sensory systems. Um, obviously the techniques, uh, for things that are painful. Uh, or, or, you know, frank tissue damage. It, the techniques are different, but our tests are the same. And uh, uh, it's just that it, it, it leads to a very continuous uh, model. Do you ever use an athlete's pain levels as an outcome measure with sports? 
What do you mean outcome measure? Like, uh, uh, just in general. Like, if they have less pain. Levels. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think... Uh, I feel like sometimes athletes are, oh, yeah, no, I don't have pain because they want to play. That would be one measure, of course. Like, I mean, players are allowed to play with pain. I mean, that, that's, that's, not a, that's not against the rules. So, uh, but a, an outcome measure, you know, in terms of judging a process, I don't think, I think that's just one part of it. Like, uh, if someone still has pain, but we have a very, very clear understanding why, then it would probably fall into not a, not a valid outcome measure because if you only care about pain, there's a lot of things that, you know, you're allowed to, like, as long as you understand it and we know that it's not of certain etiology. Uh, the word humility is a big part of our, um, of our core, core messages. If you can start to, to create a model that takes you as far away for what you care about and what you're passionate about, this, ma- this makes life so much easier. Pain is like, okay, that's what a therapist does. Stop. Like, that's the worst idea. Like, no one, there's no, nothing belongs to anyone. The model says who goes, who goes up front. So obviously, if pain is a significant limiting factor to performance, then, or, or quality of life, then there's certain interventions. But it's not because it's therapist. It's not because it's a Cairo. It's because this individual has the correct skills in their mind and in their hands and in their decisions uh, to create specific adaptations to impose demands. So as long as we know that the pain is not medically oriented uh, or, or um, orthopedic, meaning frank tissue lesion, then it's not, it's, it doesn't have to be a rehab problem anymore. Do you incorporate like, pain science education into anything that you do with your athletes? I can't think of too often where our movement output readiness and sensory systems reveals no gaps, at which point it's this nebulous talk your way out of pain. I think, I think pain, you know, anything that's scientific and, and proven is not to be debated. I don't know too many people that really champion pain science that have a clue outside of, you know, the things that they're good at. They don't even know they exist. I think if, if, uh, if we saw different uh, factors that, that people that, that, that champion pain science that they don't measure, like they, don't, they would say, well, that's not what I do, you would find that there are very, very significant gaps in neurology and physiology that could be contributing to sensitivity. Um, so, so I don't think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other reasons why, you know, for what I'm saying, because it's very compartmentalized. And I think a lot of people with pain science, they talk about like, like, what do you do? No, they don't tell you that. They don't, they only want to tell you why everybody else is wrong. Um, in the, I learned the most about, uh, pain science in, uh, the United States Marine Corps, um, where, you know, if you raise your hand that you have pain, you're, you're considered something different. And, and so there's a level of brainwashing and to be able to do certain things that like you really don't perceive pain. Uh, so it's very, very real, tangible things that people talk about, but, we, we can measure other factors that are like, oh, let's fill that in instead of, you know, trying to, you know, tell, tell other people like what they're doing is, is wrong. Um, you know, man- manual therapy, for instance, is this very, very important thing to, to what we do. We've got a tremendous osteopathic cornerstone to our manual therapy methods with our organization. And the pain science person would be like, oh, that doesn't do anything. Really? 
Like, does his shoulder not feel better? I, I find that very despicable that there are people that, that really hang on to that because they're not measuring the things that would actually indicate why when you put somebody's hands on somebody and they changes their sensitivity. That is just as much pain science as, you know, understanding different ethnicities or genders or experiences, etc. And what are your opinions on biomechanics and how do you incorporate that into an athlete's performance. For, for a particular quality that you're looking to train, if we're looking to improve capacity, um, minimal joint wear uh, and maximal force production is an extremely valuable result that can only happen within a particular range of joint you know, biomechanics. But if I'm looking to improve something else, then I, and, I, and I don't care about maximum force production and joint wear, what would look like an injury mechanism in bad biomechanics is absolutely mandatory and necessary. So I don't think we talk about biomechanics a lot, do we? Like, that's not a word that, oh, hey, we got we to gotta attack biomechanics. we got to do a biomechanics course. Like, we care very much about force plates, and we use them you know, because we're looking at the measure. Now, if, if the measure is high then we should identify the cost of that. If the mechanical load at the joints is higher than what it should be. It doesn't mean you change it because we're dealing with some of, we're arguably the second best basketball team in the world. Um, at the same time, we can render injury mechanisms irrelevant with bad biomechanics. It's not bad biomechanics. It's just a different standard. Um, you know, we'll do tons of work in, uh, uh, in eversion, uh, I'm sorry, inversion. You know, we we'll take the shoes off, and you know, okay, well, why do we do that? Well, we're constantly loading the lateral structures of the ankle, which is probably bad biomechanics. But the only way to make the lateral ankle ligaments thicker and bigger and, and focus on that is to load them. That's bad biomechanics, and I guess. But you know, there's probably a lot of things that we do that's not in good biomechanics. But I don't think we see. Yeah, like, our injuries are load-related, not, not mechanics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think we really specifically talk about biomechanics so much so. I don't consider force plate testing or training with good form biomechanics. I consider, one, a test uh, to understand, you know, strategies and maximal force production. And then when we're training for strength, power, endurance, I want the, the best result for the, the cheapest cost. That's probably very, very good biomechanics, but I might not always get that. And sometimes uh, elite performers will use uh, more costly uh, motor strategies in exchange for incredibly robust capacity measures. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, it, it, and if you know it's going to happen, then we can, you know, train for connective tissue adaptations, and you know, uh, medial collateral ligaments that are like this you know, tear a lot more than the ones that are like this. And we, we know how to do that. Um, uh, there was a study recently that Olympic lifters, their ACL is like significantly thicker than non-Olympic lifters, okay? So we're going to front squat a lot and we're going we're gonna to clean a lot because we don't want our kids to tear their ACL. Good news, if you Olympic lift and front squat, you probably jump high and you have good force production and, and you have good spinal, you know, uh, loading, you know, it's, uh, but 
I, I wouldn't use the word biomechanics to describe all of that because cat and camel is like a bad biomechanics, right? I mean, your boy down the street's going to start uh, hemming and hawing, but, uh, you know, that's a very valuable thing. Touching your toes is a major thing that we measure. We use different words, I guess, than your guys' culture. What are your thoughts on traditional physio equipment like TheraBands? Theraband is important. Yeah, you you need Theraband. You know, we'll we'll do a lot of uh, certain types of training that is very like it, it can only be done with uh, Theraband. Now, uh, if you're talking about creating adaptations at a local contractile level, I tend to think we need more than a Theraband, but it's very important. There's this new sticky Theraband I, I'm gonna get. Like it's uh, it, it sticks to itself and then it doesn't come apart. This is, I, I would use that. Yeah, it's, uh, you can train like the, the abdominal chains, you know, like, now if you're going to start doing this and start training a muscle that's like as thin as a piece of paper, um, that, that doesn't ever really move when you move your arm and think that you're making your rotator cuff stronger, now we probably have a differing opinion. Like some physio clinics that you go into, they have a table and some TheraBand, maybe weights up to 10 pounds. Do you think that's enough to get an athlete back to their sport and back to playing with the demands of the sport? What's the sport? Any sport. Yes, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Any sport. I'm sure there are sports where you can load the, the system uh, like, um, like shooting. How about for basketball? That's a cool question. I can't answer it right now, but I bet. Like, I would love to that challenge. Cause, you know, you... The answer is probably yes. I just don't know exactly what it would look like. I, I think it is yes. I yeah, think the answer yeah, is yes. Yeah. I'll figure out ways. Because, look, you can take a band to its very end. It's going to be a lot stiffer. Um, and then, of course, body weight is of is value. But if all life I had a pair of 10-pound dumbbells, a, 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 a fair complement of TheraBand, and a treatment table, yeah, like we'd be jumping over the treatment table. Like, yeah, like you, yeah. Uh, you take the treatment table by its legs and then put the band around your shoulders to press. Um, you, you ten, 10 pound dumbbells, you know, you can figure out some kind of um, oxidative approach to create type 1 hypertrophy uh, because, of course, all the physios watching this know that when you create type 1 hypertrophy, you, uh, you have an increase in mitochondria uh, for, your type, for all your phasic movements because there's no such thing as a type 1 or type 2 muscle. There's type 1 and type 2 muscle fibers. So we're probably not going to be able to train type 2 fibers with 10 pounds. Probably not. Unless we could throw the dumbbells, you know, and maybe treat it like a med ball. We could maybe do that. So, yeah, you, it could be done. Good luck, you know, but that's, uh, it could be done. For clinicians who haven't been taught a lot of these strength and conditioning principles, do you have any recommendations on where they can learn that? So, if you have no clue about strength and conditioning, you are going to find as much disposable income that you have, and it's actually not disposable because I think your tax laws are the same as ours. It will be a 100% write-off if you go to a legitimate gym and work with a trainer and just let them train you. Because now it's like a write-off, it's, it's education, uh, and then you'll actually start to understand what loading the system is supposed to do. And uh, if you think you already know, go to a trainer that has a different approach what better way? Learn by doing, I guess. Yeah, the old, the our perform better one day seminars. Learn by doing. Do you think that strength training fundamentals should be taught in physio school? 
So first of all, I don't think that there's no such thing as a strength conditioning principle because it's all specific adaptations to impose demands. So I tend to think that physical therapists need to get people stronger. So they're just getting them stronger from a lower starting point. But it doesn't, when you talk about improving contractile function, is no different whether you go from level 1 to level 10 or level 30 to level 100. Um, but my insistence is that people don't need to be able to do everything. They need, just need to be able to know when their skill set is not the primary. So I, I would actually rephrase it and be like, eh, of course, everybody should learn as much as possible. But if you give them too much, they're going to they're gonna run with it and then suck at what they do, which is probably what happens a lot but rather learn when not to do what you're good at. Like, let someone else do it, where you just know that, okay, this, this, this car needs new brakes, and I'm really good at changing the filter and the spark plugs, and I'm good at paint, you know, washing the car, but I don't really know much about brakes. So I'm pretty sure this is a brake problem. I'm not 100% sure. Let, go, go let someone else do it. So it might, it might make them a better therapist. Um, and support this very circular thought process. Is there any technology from your perspective that you kind of see up and coming in this field? I'm going to guess no, because we feel very good about the stuff that we're using, which maybe other people are not familiar with. But anything that can create you know, um, consistent measures of when they're healthy and figuratively at their best, that should be whatever that is, that's up and coming because then you have something to measure against. So you're not just guessing. Any things that you would want clinicians who don't have a great idea about what you guys do to know? All illness, all disease, all injuries, all limitations are because the body adapted in this undesirable fashion. It, it's, it, it, was, it was supposed to happen that way. So if you adapt in an undesirable fashion, there's no such thing as, like all adaptations are positive. Like everything that has, all disease, all illness, all injury are all imminently positive so we don't die. Like that's why, that's why we have, that's why the body changes. So we don't die. So if, if there's an undesirable adaptation, it was because we didn't die, but now there's this cost that is, is of, high, of a high load. If we could take the focus first, of creating this incredibly resilient organism that didn't, didn't have to bend as much to these stressors that can cause illness and disease and injury and, 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 and undesirable adaptations, then everything just crystallizes. And um, I would hope that, that that's a, the, way, like the view of looking at it. And then most of the time, well, no one looks at it like that. I'm like, okay, well... I can explain more, but I can only explain to people that want to listen. Like I'm, I found uh, I'm I'm pretty good at explaining to other people I'm right, but I'm not very good at explaining to other people why they're wrong. Um, and that would be the second thing. Like you have to be humble, and I can be sarcastic and whatever. But the goal of any evaluation is to take the service as far away from you as possible. You can't be wrong then. So if, if I, like in a, in a traditional physiotherapy role, if I evaluate someone and I feel that they need surgery, I should be able to tell in 60 minutes 
maybe maybe 90 minutes if, if they don't if they need surgery or not uh you should be able to do something because if you can change it a little bit then they don't need surgery that means there's an angle but there are times that you cannot change like there's times that knees go like that and no matter what they do their shoulder hurts T stop don't don't try get them to a surgeon that isn't gonna like usurp control uh, because it has to be right if, if you get as far away from your own um, skill set and your own passion and your own expertise and you really believe that someone else is the correct answer then you have a team and everybody is cool everybody eats that I, I think I think we do that but we have to have good people you can't have anybody who wants to be a hero you can't have anybody that would rather like try and fail than do nothing and win that's that's how about that that's a new one I, I gotta tweet that no, I, th I think that I think I think most people would rather you know try their hardest and show all their altruism and break out everything they possibly could and give them all this positive, you know, mechanical and emotional energy, and fail, than be really really good at determining you know what this is not the battle that I can win. Let me get them to somebody else. I tell people a lot like I 100% promise that you will be perfect. You will do everything you want to do. It's just not going to be on your terms. I'm sorry, I can't help you. And I'm, you know, I'm usually right. And there's times that, be, but because I have great relationship with the best surgeons in the world at Hospital Special Surgery in New York City, I don't have the problems. Like, I, I, I yo, do it. All right, you were right. Anything else you want, guys want to add in? Um, if, if a lot of the stuff that I'm saying is is a traditional or or sarcastic to the point where it is uh, offensive. Be collegiately offended, not personally offended. Like, just so strange. Like, you know, if they even watch this far. So. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes Store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.